Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it is through your word that you increase the church. We thank you that that didn't stop happening in Jerusalem. That when the church went to Antioch, you continued to increase her size by the preaching of your word. And everywhere disciples went when the word was preached... People came to know Christ as their Savior. We thank you that in Zambia and in China and in Korea, people hear the word and they respond in faith. We thank you, Father, because if it were not for that, there would be nothing we could do to turn them to Christ. We pray this morning as we look to your word that our hearts would be changed and our confidence in you would be so far greater than it is in ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing now in our series on the church. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, we talked about membership for the last two weeks. And this week and next week, we're talking about deacons. We looked at what God's word has to say about the deacons of the church. Before we do, let's kind of do some review, okay? So there are are three truths that we've established now as we have looked at God's calling on the church. The first truth, and I think you'll remember this, is that God has called us into eternity with Him, right? So, So for Christians, we know that already God has called us to be with Him for eternity, but we also know this that He has kept us here. He's kept us here in these gatherings of believers that we call churches. And we learned last week that it is in these local churches that we are matured, that we are kept in the faith, and in a way prepared for eternity with God. That's truth number one. The second truth that we have seen is that through the church, The wisdom of God is being made known to the world. See, the church is the the heavenly kingdom outpost that the gospel is being announced from. The church is the temple of God. It's it's the, the conduit through which the glory of God and the gospel flows through so that the world could see 
God's good wisdom and hear his wisdom and know him as redeemer through his word. That's truth number two. That the third truth is that because all of that is supposed to happen through the church, Satan knows all he has to do is attack the church. And he can keep his dominion. He can prevent the spread of God's kingdom throughout the world if he can just stop the church. He he tried to stop Jesus, didn't he? He tried to stop Jesus by killing him, but it didn't work. Jesus rose from the dead, and by doing that, he gave us the hope of new life. And, And now, all of those with this same hope of this new and forever life are growing and gathering together and proclaiming this Jesus. So a battle has begun. We talked about this. We we talked about how from Ephesians 6, these cosmic powers, these authorities, are going to press against the church. But here's the problem. This is truth number four, one we haven't really talked about yet. Proposition number four. It's a new one. I want to warn you, it's not a small problem. You know what it is? These churches that God has called to this high calling are filled to the brim with sinners. We are sinners. God has called you into the church to magnify the name of Christ to the entire world. And even the cosmic powers over this present darkness are to hear and see this good news of Christ through us. It's through you and me as members of the body of Christ that God is channeling this plan of redemption. But we have this enormous handicap. You're a sinner and I'm a sinner and every member of every church in every nation around the world is a sinner. We are saved Sinners, And we've been given a greater responsibility than anybody ever in the history of the world since Jesus. If you're playing the odds, truth number four, the fact that we are still sinners, seems as if it would play an advantage to the other side, to the, the cosmic powers that rule over the world. I mean, think about how can a, how can a bunch of sinners work together, selfish sinners, we'll add that. How can a bunch of selfish sinners work together in unity as one body to proclaim the gospel, to live out the implications of the gospel, and to to really and truly love one another the way that Christ loved the church? That's like asking Ewoks to destroy the Death Star. (laughs) Their, Their knees don't bend. They don't have fingers. And much like us, their preference is to run around without clothes on. And it just so happens that these are the creatures that are chosen to help save the universe. Christians are not as sinful as we could be. That's the good news. All right? We're not as bad as we could be. The the Holy Spirit in us is changing our desires. The, The Word of God is transforming us. And so in many ways, we are more holy. We're more righteous than our old selves. And yet, as I look around this room and look in the mirror, we're still in the flesh, aren't we? We're still fighting this 
disease, this sin disease that won't be totally cured until we see Jesus face to face. Well, last week we talked about how the early church had an advantage, or what seems to be an advantage over us, because they lived near one another and they could meet together more often and study the word more. They could be encouraged and challenged and rebuked where they needed it more than we can because of our distance from one another. Remember from Acts 2 how they're sharing everything they have with one another and things look really good for them? Well, as it turns out, if you continue in the book of Acts, as we will today, even with that advantage, Satan still found a way to stir up trouble in that church. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see these two strains of attack against the early church, two flanks of battle. The first is always the outside. The church is attacked through outside politicians and religious leaders who, who made the proclamation of the word difficult for the church. And if you read Acts, you'll see this. You see the priests and the scribes and, and governors, are, they're opposing the apostles, who, and they're trying to shut them up. But with each wave of attack, what happens? The church responds in prayer, in boldness in the spirit, and the church grows stronger. In fact, these, these types of persecutions in the early church and still today, they're the greatest catalyst for church growth. They should have a conference called Catalyst where they just persecute. <laughs> God used these outside pressures to expand the church and to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Even after the book of Acts, we see this pattern continue and it continues today. The growth of Christ's church is growing Faster in places where there is more outside opposition. Think about that. So, so while outside opposition isn't a particularly effective strategy at hampering the proclamation of the gospel, it's still a strategy that Satan still uses. He hasn't given up. He just uses it to, to take pot shots, to, to discourage the church, to take out some of her leaders where he can. It's the first strategy. We see that throughout the book of Acts. The second strategy, though, is the one we're going to focus on this morning. This is the one that the darkness uses to work from within the church. It's much more effective. It's also something that we aren't usually look, we're not usually looking out for. To succeed at this, Satan doesn't have to destroy the church. He doesn't have to kill anybody. That's his goal, but he doesn't have to do it. All he really needs to do is render the church ineffective. Take her focus off of the proclamation of the word, that only thing that can change hearts, and put the focus on other things. Even good things, meals and programs and feeding the poor and holidays and entertainment. If you can take the apostles or what nowadays would be the preachers, the ministers of the word, if Satan can distract them from prayer and study and teaching and discipling the church, then the church will be made ineffective. We see this type of attack in our text this morning in Acts chapter 6. You'll look with me. I hope you still have your Bibles open. We're not going to have text on the screen today. It's just verse by verse. So follow along in Acts chapter 6 with me. In Acts 6, verse 1, 
the gospel writer Luke sets the stage for what we're about to see. He says, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. He's giving us that that general time period after Pentecost when the church was growing. Basically that time between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 6. In Acts 2, let's just think about the the growth that we're seeing here. On Pentecost, Luke tells us that there were 3,000 souls added to the church. So they go from 20 some odd people to 3,000 in one day. And as the church grew in their love for one another and their devotion to the teaching of the apostles, Luke says they grew even more. He always uses the word added. There were people added to their number is the way he describes it in Acts. And then as we move along into Acts 4, after the arrest arrest of Peter and John, remember this one of those outside attacks, the church continues to grow. So that the number of men is around 5,000. It's like they can't even count the entire church anymore. They just have to go by households, by, by the men that are present there. And here's the thing, when you read Acts, as you see this church growth happening in the book of Acts, it always comes by the proclamation of the word. Always. And the apostles know this. That there isn't anything in Acts that the church is doing to be attractional. They're not putting donuts and coffee in the foyer and hoping people will come. There's no indoor fireworks. They're not having a celebrate Caesar day. They're preaching the resurrection and the kingship of Jesus and getting arrested for it. People are being brought to new life through that and the church is growing Luke is saying it's in those days. When the church was growing like that, it's in those days when the church was increasing in number. Something happened. Well, what happened? Luke, look at 6.1 with me. He says a complaint arose. The King James, if you're looking at the King James Bible, says there arose a murmuring. The original language uses this word, gagusmos. That's it. It's like onomatopoeia, isn't it? The word sounds like what it is. Go, 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 goosemoss. It sounds like murmuring, doesn't it? It sounds like the, the nastiness that's rising up in the church. And, and this complaining arose, he says. Kind of like the way a weed just kind of comes up out of nowhere in my garden. And, and it spreads its nasty leaves over the good plants and it chokes them out. In the midst of this rapidly growing baby church, there arose a murmuring. And this complaining, this murmuring, it arose from the people Luke calls the Hellenists. You see that in 6.1? The Hellenists, you might know, are Greek-speaking Jews. These Hellenists were from Jewish families, so they're genetically Jewish But they had adapted to Greek life after the spread of the Greek empire several hundred years before Jesus. If you you know history, you'll know that before the Romans occupied Judean territory, the land had been occupied by the Greeks. And when the Greeks ruled over the Jews in that land, they were not kind to them. As Daniel had prophesied at the end of his book, the, the foreigners stormed the temple of the Lord. So the Greeks come into to God's temple. They sacrificed a pig on the altar. And then they worshiped Zeus there. So the abomination of desolation. And then they killed thousands and thousands of Jews. 
So even though this is several hundred years old, there's some bad blood, if you can imagine, between the Greeks and the Hebrews. And despite the history, there were a lot of Jews that had been so influenced by Greek culture through history, and and, and in their language, Luke just calls these people the Hellenists. So that's who they are. And the Hebrew Jews and the Greek Jews just didn't spend time together while they were Jews. The Hebrews considered the, the Hellenists sellouts. They were, they were turncoats. And the split between these two groups was so significant that in Jerusalem in that day, they had different synagogues. So you had the Hellenistic Greek-speaking synagogue and the Hebrew Aramaic-speaking and Hebrew-speaking synagogues. They worshipped separately from one another. Kind of getting the picture now? So in Acts 6, the people who came to Christ and became church members out of those situations were not used to being around one another. They weren't used to worshiping together. They were not used to sharing with one another. And yet because of what Christ has accomplished, here they are together as one body. And it's not long before you can imagine what's going to happen. There's the friction. Because these were sinners yesterday, and they're still sinners, made new in Christ, but they're they're bringing into the church all of their baggage, and the friction starts. And here's where the trouble comes. The Hellenists are complaining that their widows are not being taken care of the same way that the Hebrew widows are. Luke says they thought they were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, who knows why this was happening? Luke doesn't tell us. Maybe the Hebrew meal distributors are just used to the old way of doing things. This is the way they've always done it. They didn't consider that things may be different as a result of the gospel. Maybe there's, maybe there's some low-grade resentment. Maybe there's prejudice there. Could be a language barrier thing. We don't know. Maybe there wasn't any intentional discrimination happening at all, but the Greek Jews, the Hellenists, are so used to being discriminated against that they just perceived that the Hebrews were sinning against them. Luke doesn't tell us exactly, and really, it doesn't matter. The real issue that the church has to deal with is what? It's the complaint. The murmuring. This complaining has the potential to harm the unity of the church. That's what murmuring does. That's what complaining does. Even if the issue being complained about isn't really an issue, the murmuring about it becomes an issue in itself. I just want to pause for a moment If you're a Christian, you're a part of a local church, if you're part of our church, listen, your words have the potential to do enormous damage to the body of Christ. In the church of Christ, your words can be far more destructive to the unity and to the witness of the church than if we were violently attacked from the outside. When complaining rises up in the church, it doesn't stop. It just keeps going out 
doesn't it? Like, like ripples in a pond from one small stone thrown into the pond. And that complaining, it goes into homes, and the kids hear it. And then when you talk to your neighbors, your neighbors hear it. Non-Christians hear this from Christians. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then do you know why he says that? He keeps going. Philippians 2.15. Do all things without grumbling or complaining so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You, you seeing this? God's called you out of the darkness into his light and put you back where you were to be light. And the way that's supposed to shine through is through your words. But our grumbling and complaining, we need to know it never stops with that one little conversation spoken in confidence in a room with a closed door. It never stops there. It spreads. The attitude spreads. The words spread. And rather than shining like lights in the world, the Christians, muddied by their own sin, look and sound just like the world Our light is dimmed by our own sin. Our light becomes hidden under a basket. So we have to understand the real and present danger of murmuring. You might know this already, but it's oftentimes not the attractiveness of the world that draws people away and keeps people away from the church. Sadly, it's often the nastiness of the church that pushes them away. If you're here this morning, and if you're one of those people who has been pushed away from God's people by grumbling Christians, if you left Christ's church some time ago because of the hypocrisy of Christians, I want to plead with you this morning, do not despise Christ because of his people. Devote yourself to him and to his word and through the spirit of Christ pray that you would grow in love for his bride. Pray for brotherly love. Pray for a love that is patient and humble and understanding. And and then I'm going to put this on you. Do not expect more holiness from the church than you expect from yourself. Instead, Gather with the church, expecting to see the church grow in Christ's likeness as you grow with her. That takes humility, doesn't it? Well, the apostles, the leaders of this church, recognize the danger of what's happening. They see this in this baby church in Jerusalem. They see the danger of this murmuring, and so what do they do? Well, they, they recognize they have a choice to make. They have a few options to choose from. One, they can stop everything that they're doing and deal with this growing problem because of its seriousness. Two, they can ignore the problem and just hope that it goes away. Three, they can split the church into two, Greek and Hebrew, or maybe go to two services, traditional and contemporary. Or four, they can just delegate. They can, they can delegate this, this 
problem, the, the solution to this problem to somebody else. Well, what do they do? Well, look at verse 2 with me. Acts chapter 6, verse 2. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. What's that mean? They gathered together the entire church. There's thousands of people. I don't know how they did it. I don't know what that looked like, whether they did it in their house churches or what. But they, they gathered together the entire church. And they got all these people together for a members meeting. And look what they told him. They said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. The preaching of the word of God is the highest priority in Christ's church. It's not optional. There's a lot of things we can do as a church that we don't have to do. This isn't one of them. We have to do this. It's not an add-on at the end of the week. It is priority number one. If their message stops being preached, the church stops growing. It stops growing numerically. The people stop growing in maturity and in Christ's likeness. Essentially, the church ceases to be the church. They can't give up preaching the word of God. So look at how they resolve this issue. Look at verse 3. They say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They know that they've got to be devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. That word we translate as ministry, there is the word Diaconia. You should hear some similarities there to the word deacon. It's the verb form of the word we get deacon from. And all it means is to serve. So the apostles are going to be servants, deacons of the word, rather than servants of tables. You see the juxtaposition there in verse 2 and 3? They're saying in verse 2, it's not right for us to deacon tables. And then in verse 3, we have to deacon the Word. And serving the Word is a full-time job, and it takes absolute devotion. So what do they do? They tell the members of the church, pick seven men. The apostles delegate their authority to the congregation. As an aside, we can do some Baptist celebration here. Okay, If, If apostles... Men chosen by Jesus himself and gifted like no one after them to speak on Christ's behalf. If these guys are given the authority to the congregation to nominate these men, I think we should follow in that pattern today. This is why we will and are and will continue to be a congregationally governed church. No elder has more wisdom than these apostles. And so the apostles delegate the responsibility. It's a different topic, different sermon. The point in Acts 6 is that through the leadership of the apostles, the congregation is asked to pick out seven mature Christian men who will serve these tables, will deacon tables. This is a big task. Think about all this entails. It's not, they're not just waiters in a restaurant, they're, they're keeping track of finances. They're, they're purchasing food. They know who is a widow and who needs help and whose families are taking care of them. And they're loving and serving the church in such a way that what happens? The murmuring just silenced. The murmuring goes away. 
the unity of the church is, is built up because of their service. Well, throughout church history, you might know this, theologians have typically viewed these seven men as the prototypes, the, the alpha versions of what will later become deacons in the New Testament church. I don't believe that this is the office of deacon right here in Acts 6, but, but what these men are asked to do will become the basis of what we'll see next, next week in 1 Timothy. So I want to take a moment, though, and just look at the character of these men, all right, these seven men. The, the, the apostles are looking for these particular qualifications. These are the three qualifications they're looking for. These men are to have a good reputation, they're to be full of the Spirit, and to be full of wisdom. Three very simple qualifications. Good reputation means that people trust them, right? So they have a track record that that no one can hold anything against them, either inside or outside the church. Nobody can grab a hold of something in their past and begin to make accusations against them. People speak well of these guys. We're going to see that again next week in Timothy. Secondly, these men are full of the Spirit. This one I think we need to pay careful attention to. In the book of Acts, the people who are full of the Spirit are always speaking boldly on behalf of Christ. It's what the Spirit's fullness does in Acts. They proclaim the good news boldly. They aren't cowards when it comes to sharing the good news of Christ because the Spirit is in them. So how would we apply that? We would say a deacon must be a bold proclaimer of the gospel. There are other evidences of the Spirit's filling, though, that we need to be aware of in the New Testament. Galatians 5 tells us that evidence of someone having the Spirit is in their character. They exhibit love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, gentleness, faithfulness. So a deacon must have those qualities, right? If he has the Spirit, he's going to have those qualities. If somebody's a loose cannon and he's a grouch, there's no joy in his life, well, he might be an immature Christian, he might be a hurting Christian, but he isn't someone we'd say is full of the Spirit. So he shouldn't be a deacon. He's not qualified in those ways. Ephesians 5 says evidence of the Spirit's filling is in this, our addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart. So track with me. This is kind of interesting. Someone who is filled with the Spirit is someone who loves to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The application of this is that someone who doesn't sing the Word of God isn't filled with the Spirit and isn't seeking the Spirit's filling. And they shouldn't be a deacon. And lastly, the apostles say these men must be wise. Not just wise, though. Full of wisdom. That means people recognize them as as good, sound decision makers. They have a track record of one good decision after another. Their reputation is in bringing order out of chaos, not the other way around. If they run businesses, they've made sound business decisions. If they have families, they have led their families in faithfulness and wisdom. When there's a conflict, they're going to have the, the, the mental equipment and the character and the experience to not just know how to resolve it, they'll also have the emotional intelligence and the people skills to do it. They aren't causing more conflict. 
They're solving problems and making peace because they have understanding. They have discernment. They are full of wisdom. Well, the apostles determined that all of those qualities would be essential to whoever was chosen to address this issue in the church. And look at verse 5 with me there. Acts 6, verse 5. This decision that they made pleased the whole gathering. All right, so the people are happy. This is is a great idea, apostles. So here's the pattern. There's an issue that threatens the unity and the witness of the church. The leaders of the church recognize the issue and that they lead by delegating the responsibility so that what? So they can prioritize prayer in the ministry of the word. The congregation listens to their leaders and then they submit to their leaders with joy and choose the seven. And look at who these seven are. In verse 5, they chose Stephen. And we're going to learn about Stephen if you keep reading in Acts chapter 6. He's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And they chose Philip. Now both of these guys are mentioned first because they're going to be talked about later in, in the book of Acts. Luke also tells us that in addition to Stephen and Philip, you've got Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. I have no idea if I'm saying those right. Nicholas is a proselyte of Antioch. That means Nicholas wasn't a Jew who spoke Greek. He was actually a Gentile who had earlier converted to Judaism and is now following Christ. All seven of these men have Greek names. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are in the Hellenist camp. But we can assume that probably most of them were. So I want you to think about this for a minute. Think about what that problem was in this church a dispute over how the things are distributed to the Hellenist widows and the Hebrew widows. So from just a practical standpoint, you can kind of see why the congregation would choose Greek-ish men's for this duty. They recognize that if it is the Greek widows who are being neglected, either because of a language barrier or something else, then having men who would be sure to care for them was very important. They were eager to maintain unity, weren't they, as we studied in Ephesians. The congregation let the gospel prevail in this situation. They let Christ be their peace. They they willingly placed this important duty in the hands of men that many of them previously would not have even gathered together to worship with. But because they had been brought together in Christ as one body, They prioritized Christ's glory over their own prejudice. This is like, it's roughly equivalent to to an all-white church in Mississippi calling a black man to be their pastor in 1970. A beautiful picture of the gospel's absolute leveling effect. Verse 6 says that They set these men before the apostles who prayed for them and laid hands on them. Basically, what are they doing? They're appointing them to serve. To go forth and deacon. Then look what happens in verse 7. This is good news. This This is proof of God's working through his apostles to lead this church and to one day lead us by example. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
the word of God increased, first of all. The word of God increases because the apostles can now be fully devoted to their task. Proclaiming the word of God. And then look what happens as as a result of the increase of the preaching of the word. The church isn't being added to anymore. No, Luke doesn't say added to. Look what he says. He says the number of disciples is multiplying now. Greatly even. The word is increasing and the church is growing so much that Luke tells us that many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. The priests, this is kind of unprecedented. Even in, when Christ was walking the earth, very, very few priests became Christ followers. Nicodemus did, but this wasn't normal. If you, if you can imagine, priests' livelihoods were dependent on Judaism. So if they leave the temple, if they leave the synagogues and join the church, they lose their jobs. They have more to lose than most people. But Luke says many of them were becoming obedient to the faith. And the way he links the increasing of the word of God and the multiplication of the disciples and the conversion of these priests is directly connected to the deacon work of these seven men. The church grew because the preaching of the word was prioritized and because her unity was protected. Deacons or servants were first given to the church to help with a physical administrative need that the church had that otherwise would have fallen on the pastors, the the apostles. And through serving that need, the deacons protected the church from division. We still need deacons, don't we? Because we still have physical and administrative needs in the church. And the church still needs to be protected from murmuring because the church is still filled to the brim with sinners. We need people to help organize kitchen ministries. That's deacon work. If no one runs the kitchen, Wednesday night meals don't happen. We need people to run our sound system. So thank you. Lance, if there's no one to serve the church in this way, the ministry of the word is made more difficult, isn't it? I'm shouting instead of just speaking into a microphone. We need someone to care for our building. If Dustin and I were in charge, just imagine. (laughs) Either the preaching and the music would be terrible or the building would fall down. We need people from within the church to ensure that our building and our grounds are taken care of. Just like the Jerusalem church, we have seniors, both widows and widowers, and they need special care. Caring for their physical needs is deacon work. And the people called out to ensure that our seniors are being taken care of are deacons. Deacons are appointed to care for the physical needs of the church, so that the operations of the church go on smoothly, so that the church can be protected from grumbling and division. Do you see the connection here? Good. Deacons are who? They're mature Christians who see how crucially important the ministry of the word is. And they will do anything in their power to preserve it. A lot of times we either elevate and confuse diaconal service with that of pastor shepherd or we just totally ignore the importance of deacons altogether 
the, the role of the servants of the church, listen, it's absolutely crucial. It's crucial to the life of the church, but it is a very specific, God-ordained and defined role. The church's servants are to clear the way for the proclamation of the word and to preserve the unity of the church. So let's just take the last couple minutes we have and apply this to Del Cero. Can we do that? So, so whether you have the title deacon or not, I'll wait. <laughs> so whether you have the title deacon or not, if you're serving the church in any way, all right, so whatever you're doing here, if you're serving the church in any way, whether that's through running the sound or serving our kids or serving our seniors or our teens or helping with finances or the building and grounds or the kitchen, if you are serving in any way, here are your two priorities. Number one, that the church could be a place where the word of God would be preached boldly and effectively. Number two, that through your service to the church, you would help to promote the peace of Christ in the church so that the unity of the church could be strengthened. Just those two things. If those, if you're serving and those have been your priorities, I just want to take a moment and say thank you. This church has been strengthened by you. You are an encouragement and a blessing to more people than you know. There's always a but though, isn't there? But if you are serving for any other reason, you need to ask God to change your heart or step down. If you have in your heart the sense that nobody else can do what you do, and that's why you're doing it, or if you have a longing for a title or a longing for recognition from others and you're serving for the wrong reason and you need to carefully examine your heart and your motives. If you find it difficult to serve without murmuring or complaining or if you find yourself to be a murmuring magnet, people are comfortable in their sin around you, You're the person that they want to go to to complain because they're comfortable sinning with you. You need to consider stepping down from service. You're doing more harm than good. You may not see it, but the reputation of Christ is being harmed. So you need to take some time to simply sit under the preaching of the word and grow and mature in Christ before you take on the role of publicly serving in the church. Church, we have got to understand our mission. We have to know what our call is. If it is through us as a church that the glory of Christ is made known to the world, then everything we do must be done with that mission in mind. Everything. Every word we say as Christ's representatives, every door we lock or unlock, every wall we paint, every weed we pull, every dial we turn or button we press, every person we greet, every diaper we change in the nursery, everything we do here is the grace of God working through us. So that, this this is important, it's so that the world would know who Jesus is. 
so that the word would increase and go out from here so that those who are lost in the darkness could be redeemed. Everything we do counts. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, can we? Father in heaven, we, we are so weighed down by the calling that you've given us. When we look to your word and take it seriously, God, we, we know there's no way we can do this. 